0: The Bowery Boys, episode 146, Herald Square. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys.
1: Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at eurocheapo.com.
0: Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And this episode of the Bowery Boys New York City History is on Herald Square, which is one of New York's most famous intersections, perhaps even the second most famous after Times Square. Now, Greg, how do you propose that
1: we even attempt to do
0: a show on an intersection or on a on a square it 's a little bit tricky. It is such a deep and interesting history. Uh, I would even say it 's an untold history. I think a lot of people have written books about Times Square. Times Square certainly gets a lot of more attention. But Herald Square has a lot of the same elements, the entertainment, the hotels, the history of newspapers. All of this stuff flows through Herald Square. So we will find a way to sort of do a thematic history through some of the more profound and interesting things that have occurred here. Right. Because we're not
1: just telling the story about the square. You know, well, they built this road that went this way and another one that went that way and some buildings went up and you had a square. We're telling the New York stories of institutions, of, like you said, newspapers, of theaters...
0: And of course, stores.
1: Just knowing how we're able to talk <laughs> to each other endlessly, this does seem to pose a unique challenge to us.
0: But I'm ready to take up that challenge. Plus, we have a little egg timer, so that we right, won't yeah, go just to. Yeah, brought it in from the other um, room. And besides, after you hear the story, you're not going to want to go up to Times Square. Why not stay here, where you'll hear stories of a basement of freaks, a whale, and a secret doorway that exists in Herald Square. Perhaps one of the most secret doorways in all of New York. Hmm. And those are just your stories Wait till you see what I have in store for you So without further ado Tom Let's give our regards To Harold Square And that's probably a very familiar tune to you. I'm sure you've plunked that down on a piano. And a couple to times. millions
1: of others, of course, by the great George M. Cohen.
0: Right. That performance was recorded in nineteen oh five. Of course, we'll be spending a lot of time in that particular decade in this show. Right. Recorded by Billy Murray, and of course that was Give My Regards to Broadway with its of classic mention.
1: Remember me to Harold Square, which is interesting because I think that when I used to play that on the piano back home in Ohio, I think that I was thinking about Broadway as in the theater district sure. up say in the in the forties when Cohen wrote this song, of course, I think that the theater district was right here around Harold
0: Square. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get to Herald Square as a theater district, right. let's situate it because it is a very unique shape here, and let's get the geography down here. Sure. So.
1: I think if you ask most people in New York, where's Herald Square? They're going to tell you, well, it's 34th and 6th Avenue or 34th and Broadway. Which is sort of half of the story, Mm -hmm. because at that intersection of 34th Street, 6th Avenue and Broadway, there are actually two squares. There's Harold Square, the little triangle to the north of that intersection, and Greeley Square, which is a small triangle, to the south
0: of that. Now, we call that all collectively Herald Square. And I have to say there's... Well, I think colloquially. Colloquially. But but they
1: are two different squares.
0: Well, as a parallel here, Times Square, of course, is not just Times Square. It's Mm. also Times Square and Duffy Square.
1: So Herald Square is that triangle from 34th up to 35th with Broadway to the west of it. Now, this little triangle was named after the New York Herald, which was a newspaper that had its offices just to the northern edge of this triangle. We'll have much more Mm -hmm. on that in a bit. Greeley Square, the southern part, from 32nd to 33rd Street, was named for Horace Greeley, who was the publisher of the New York Tribune pulling back from early 20th century newspaper history for a second. Let's go way back to the early
0: 1800s. Yeah, I'd like to know what, ex- I mean, it's it's such a built-up area and, of course, it's an incredibly recognizable intersection. It's strange to think of this as, which is, must have been at some point, a farmland or just uh, marshes or, I mean, right. it was 200 years ago.
1: Well, most of this land, of course, at the time of the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, most of this land was the domain of private farmers. When the Commissioner Commissioner's plan came along in 1811. This territory or much of the Herald Square area was actually part of what was going to be called the Grand Parade. If you'll recall mm-hmm. from our podcast on the Commissioner's plan, there was this parade ground that was from 23rd to 33rd Street and it stretched across several avenues including this area around Herald Square. Well, it did stop at 30 but that's technically still part of Greeley Square. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. It would have come over to this. The interesting thing about that is that Broadway continued up from lower Manhattan and stopped at 23rd Street, which was the lower part of what was supposed to be this parade ground. Mm-hmm. To the north of this was the old Bloomingdale Road, which would
0: continue up the west side of the island. And Bloomingdale Road was one of two ways, basically, to get out of Manhattan, right? So it's a very that's old right up the road, right? hmm
1: well, in the 1840s, they decided to do away with the plans for this, this parade ground and instead widen the road that was already there and connect formally Broadway with Bloomingdale Road. And and what this did was create really interesting intersections where Broadway, this only crooked street, would hit the major avenues. So Times Square was created when Broadway hit 7th Avenue mm-hmm. and 42nd Street, Herald Square when Broadway hit 6th Avenue and 34th Street. Madison Square, where it hit 23rd and 5th, and Union Square, where it hit 14th and 4th Avenue.
0: Right. So that lays out the streets here, Right. but I'm still not getting any sense of what's going on here, the culture, the buildings that are around here at this time.
1: As with many things with the Commissioner's Plan, just because it was laid out, and at this point in the 1840s, you know, became formalized, it didn't mean that all the lots were bought up and that people moved in. It took a while for the residents of New York to keep moving forward further and further north. And it took certain big projects to really get people to move uptown, notably the elevated railroads. Mm -hmm. So it was in 1876 that the 6th Avenue Elevated Railroad was constructed and opened and really brought people in mass up from the lower parts of the city further toward midtown into these new settled blocks. And I think that's something that today when you look at Herald Square... For so long, the 6th Avenue elevated was a, a real part of it. You know, it was a real part of the cityscape. You have to imagine standing at Harold Square and looking north with Macy's on your left, 6th Avenue is running straight ahead of you. And above you would have been this loud, chugging railroad that was throwing soot and making lots of noise and shaking the buildings as it went up and down 6th Avenue. And it did that for many, many decades. From the late 1870s to the 1930s. The Elevated is one of the reasons, too, that 6th Avenue became so popular for mid-range shops and stores and what would become department stores because the masses could move very easily up and down 6th Avenue. 6th Avenue. But it wasn't really that glamorous. How glamorous could it be to walk around underneath this elevated train and have soot come down on you? Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, over on Fifth Avenue, they were far enough away from the elevated train, that they they weren't so negatively impacted by the, the lesser sides.
0: Well, so you bring up a good point. We're not just talking about the population moving north. Now we're talking about the different classes of New York, the high and low classes of the mid-19th century. In 1856, William Backhouse Astor and his mm-hmm. wife, Carolyn Schermerhorn, i.e., Mrs. Astor, they were a little bit intrepid for high culture, and they developed a brownstone at Fifth Avenue and 34th Street. Now, there there were not these sorts of houses in the 1850s. One block east of Herald Square. Right, right. On the site of today's Empire State Building. Mm Mm-hmm. So then you have, in Herald Square, you have that elevated railroad- Mm Mm-hmm. Cutting a line physically through the city, but cutting a cultural line, because then on the other side of it, slowly developed throughout the 1860s and 1870s, this neighborhood that has popularly been called the Tenderloin. It's a very flexible boundaries, uh, the Tenderloin. I'm surprised we have not talked about this area more. Um, And indeed, we could have an entire show about that. And probably will. So the Tenderloin is the western side of the 6th Avenue Elevated. Right. So it's a very broad stretch of western Manhattan. It's almost down to 23rd Street, almost up to like 57th, but all on the western side of, mm-hmm. th- of the elevated train here. That's a here. big Tenderloin. It was more of a way to distinguish it from the elegant areas and then also from the outright slums like five points, because I would say that its parallel in New York was the Bowery, mm-hmm. actually. Um, it was an entertainment district with saloons, thousands of saloons, brothels, gambling houses, all sorts of illicit and alternative scenes going on here. But the prime difference, Tom, is the Bowery was for lower income, uh, a burgeoning middle income classes. And the tenderloin was, what, for for middle-class men to go get their brothel on? (laughs) Exactly. It was basically, for everyone, lower and higher classes. Uh Because remember, around this time, you have all of the glamorous... Fancy hotels, the restaurant scene of, like, Fifth Avenue Hotel at 23rd and Fifth Avenue. Right. Um, Developing all around here. So one way to look at the Tenderloin is not only is it on the other side of the tracks. Literally. Literally. But it's also behind the hotels. So it's like a big back alley. This sprawling
1: district of vice was conveniently located for people who were either coming to the city or just out and dining in the hotels and enjoying themselves. If
0: you were a 21-year-old from out of town with a lot of money in your pocket, Mm -hmm. you hit the tenderloin. Absolutely. You were probably going to get robbed in the tenderloin. (laughs) There were some fairly legit establishments, Well, I'll I'll tell you about in a second, and then, of course, places that would not have stayed open had there not been a deep connection of bribery with the New York Police Department during the day in the 1870s. In fact, the Tenderloin gets its name from a police officer. In 1876, the Sergeant Alexander Clubber Williams, he said, quote, I've had nothing but chuck steak for a long time, and now I'm going to get a little bit of tenderloin. Well, I'm glad they didn't call it the chop steak. Or the chopped liver. <laughs> well, I'm sure there were a few chopped livers in some of these places. Now, I have to just pull back and just say that we're going to be going kind of back and forth through actual time periods here because there, there wasn't like this happened and then something else happened. In fact, the Tenderloin establishments would last well into the beginning of the 20th century, and then they would eventually close down due to moral crackdowns, but more importantly, just culture kept moving up into midtown Manhattan, and so 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 this neighborhood, which was once a sort of seedy, titillating neighborhood, would by the middle of the 20th century, uh, most of that would be gone. So to give you an example of what the Tenderloin was like, I've chosen three particular establishments that were here specifically in the Herald Square area. So the first example of street life here in the uh, the Tenderloin, there would be places that had strange curiosities, little weird museums that you would pay like 50 cents or whatever to get into and see something ridiculous, all in sort of the spirit of P.T. Barnum. I was going to say it sounds a bit like Barnum's American Museum. And actually, like in the Bowery at this time, there were all these... Cabinet of Curiosity type oh, right, weird yeah. places with like, you know, they've been displayed skeletons and whatever. Well, in 1876, if you were at the corner of 35th and Broadway, you could go into the great New York Aquarium. <gasps> keep in mind, you know, how... Well, that
1: sounds very wholesome.
0: I was thinking you were going to tell me something really sort of scandalous. Oh, we're getting there. I'm going to work my way into the scandal. um, That's very kid appropriate. (laughs) Well, this was opened by W.C. Coop, who was a former employee of P.T. Barnum. So the place would be open from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. That's key because, of course, this is like the era of gaslight. So imagine an aquarium under gaslight, how interesting that would be, and walk in and you would see, quote, living wonders of the mighty deep made possible by a constant stream of water brought in from the Atlantic Ocean. The centerpiece here of this place would be a gigantic tank that would be fit for a whale. In fact, it was supposed to have a whale when Mm -hmm. it opened, but it died in Transit, So it sort of stood empty when the place first opened in 1876. But there would be displays for porpoises, sea lions, sharks. But this is not the right era for aquariums, for proper care of these creatures. And so, unfortunately... They went through a lot of them, and it didn't quite work. And it was still a little northern, even for this period. So by 1881, the contents of the aquarium had been sold off and it closed. Well, that's rather sad. There just wasn't an audience for it? Well, well, because people were coming up to this era for other things, other things. For instance, on the other side... Of the area we call Herald Square today, or rather down slightly below Greeley Square today, would have been one of the most famous dance halls of the era. So just imagine dozens of these types of places scattered around the Tenderloin area. But the biggest one and the most notorious was right here at Herald Square. It was called the Haymarket Dance Hall. At 30th Street and 6th Avenue, so just slightly below it. But you would have taken the train at the the Herald Square stop. It's still right there on 6th Ave. So you, of course, would have music at all hours. There might even be a song plugger up from Tin Pan Alley. Just on 28th Street. Who would come up with the song. Um, There would be Can Can. There would be tons of dancing girls. And then in the back of the Haymarket, you might find a little prostitution of both the female and male varieties. The male prostitutes were for a male clientele? Yeah. uh, yeah. Again, what kept it open and what kept it thriving was unlike the Bowery, it kept all these vices very hidden. In fact, it was so well-hidden that, according to the author Timothy Guilfoyle, quote, an innocent man and his wife could have wandered into the haymarket and been entirely unconscious of what was going on around them. So it was sort of an underworld scene that was here. Well, maybe the aquarium should have gotten in on some of the action, you know? Had a <laughs> little, like, behind the tank. <laughs> With, I could see some dancing girls, like, surrounding, like, a manta ray or something. <laughs> Maybe the dress could be a manta ray. But there was a world between the sort of like spectacle bizarreness of the aquarium and the illicitness of the Haymarket dancing girls. This would be an area where an alternative scene, a bohemian scene, would develop here as well. So my third example of a place around this area at 116 West 32nd Street was a private gentleman's club called the Tenderloin Club. So this is between sixth and seventh on thirty second. Right. So if you were to like stand in Greeley Square and begin going down thirty second Street, and then right to your left is this Jax. It's like a discount retailer called Jax. Oh yeah, sure. So that's where this particular the Tenderloin Club was located. Let me tell you what you would have found there. Um, the slogan of the club was quote Check your morals with the blonde at the door. <laughs> It was a bohemian club for artists and writers of the day, men of a more progressive style. Read into that what you mm-hmm. will. It kind of embodied, to me from reading about this, it embodied the spirit of what the East Village might have been like in the 1980s, actually. There was a joy de vivre, flamboyant, but also artistic scene. There were brightly painted hallways with wacky art installations. For instance, at one point... There was a hall decoration that said the words, blasted hopes on this gigantic wall that had been spelled out in losing lottery tickets. Oh, wow. There would be, you know, like maybe during the early evening, proper games in the backyard. But at midnight, there would be late night cocktail parties in the basement, and they were renowned for a very peculiar kind of party. Like I said there were all of these crazy museums and you know wax museums all over the city. Many of these employed what we would like what they might have called in the day freaks, people that were hired for different physical abnormalities if you will. Well, they would all come to the Tenderloin Club and they would all be from rival museums. They would collect here. One report I read had such people as quote the 400-pound woman ossified men scotch irish and norwegian albinos giants and dwarfs snake charmers with their baskets just another saturday night <laughs> and they would arrive here and they would all sort of compete for each other's attention because they were all from different museums but so they weren't performing
1: for another clientele they were there to sort of just to
0: mingle with the with, uh, with other, other gentlemen yeah so it was a very open very wow like you you could meet all sorts of people at the Tenderloin Club. So that's just sort of an example of the three different kinds of places you would find in this neighborhood. I think today, like the most provocativeness you might find may be at the Victoria's Secret at uh, <laughs> 34th and 6. But of course, more legitimate entertainments would soon arrive in this neighborhood now, what what were the dates of the Tenderloin Club? The Tenderloin Club was from mid-1880s mm-hmm. um, and probably lasted a little over a decade before it closed because it got too popular. Well, that's very interesting, Greg, because
1: on October 22nd, 1883, mm-hmm. so awesome, the mid-1880s, There was a performance of Faust, the opera, that was truly spectacular, and it marked the debut, the premiere of the Metropolitan Opera. Mm. This was in the newly constructed Metropolitan Opera House, which was located at 1411 Broadway,
0: which took up the entire block between 39th and 40th on Broadway. This immediately typifies what was so strange about this neighborhood, that you would have all these unusual places sitting aside. I mean, nothing gets more legit than the Met Opera House, right? Or certainly Mm highbrow. Absolutely. That opening night, the combined
1: wealth of the patrons who were inside that auditorium was estimated to be... $500 $500 million. Dollars.
0: So, so the wealthiest of New York.
1: Right, of new and also old. It was a really curious and amazing debut. The The building itself, the Metropolitan Opera House, was designed by J. Cleveland Cady, and it was derided by the nickname, quote, Yellow Brick Brewery, because it, <laughs> it looked rather shabby, an industrial from the outside made in yellow bricks. On the inside, however, it was very lovely and had a seating capacity of 3,625. Most notably about the place, it had lots and lots and lots of private boxes and loges. More, in Mm. fact, private boxes than any other opera house in the history of opera houses.
0: (laughs) Why so many boxes? So many opera fans in town?
1: Well, so many... Prominent opera fans who wanted their chance to shine because, of course, sure. these these boxes were built ve- very conspicuously to show off the patrons who were sitting within them. But more specifically, it tells the story of new money and power facing off with the old New York asters mm, and uh-huh. and the old society. After the Civil War in New York, there, there were some people who made a lot of money. This didn't sit well with the old money, who felt threatened, of course. Now, the place to be seen, as we talked about in our show on the Brooklyn Academy of Music, was at the Academy of Music on 14th mm-hmm. Street in Irving Place. The Academy of Music is where you would go for culture and opera in New York. It was the old centerpiece of high
0: society. Right.
1: The only problem, of course, for new society at the old... Uh, Academy of Music, was that this opera house only had 18 loges, mm-hmm. which was certainly not enough to accommodate the city's new wealthy and powerful. You couldn't see and be
0: seen, which is why people went well, to the you opera. C- you could see, <laughs>
1: but you just couldn't really be seen, because oh. the likes of the Vanderbilts were forced to get this. Are you ready? They had to sit down in the orchestra. <gasps> scandal <laughs> So they would sit down there, and they, they swore that they were getting sneered at by those up in the loges. Oh, I'm
0: sure. Those new money commoners.
1: For the 1880-1881 season of the Academy of Music, William Henry Vanderbilt, who had more money than God at this point, offered $30,000 in 1880 dollars for one of these loges for the season, and he was rebuffed.
0: Those are like Barclays Center prices. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, so Vanderbilt stomped off, and he decided to construct his own damn opera house, and he did that on April 8th, 1880. He signed off on the charter for the Metropolitan Opera House with Jay Gould and and other newly powerful men in the city. They bought this land between 39th and 40th on Broadway for $600,000, and they gave their architect, Katie, a $430,000 budget. The biggest directive, of course, for him was to build plenty of
0: boxes so vanderbilt did get his box he just built it himself greg the vanderbilt family got five boxes (laughs) oh um one for all the kids i guess
1: Although it was beautiful to look at on the inside, it did have its problems, spatial restrictions and such. Just imagine this. There was really not much of a backstage at the the Old Met. (laughs) Uh And so sets and things were stored outside on the street, on 39th Street, just sort of leaning up against the building. So
0: in the Tenderloin itself, like off on on a side street. south, Uh South of it, as you were walking down Broadway. But again, it's incredible that this a high-class destination uh, would be in this neighborhood. Uh, I just find it so incredible that high and low culture lives so close to each other that girls are can-canning while divas are singing upon the stage of the Met Opera House here. And I guess other theaters would soon arrive. Yes, this was the next
1: place for all of the, the big theaters in town to move. If you want to walk this, Greg, you can. Today, I I got off the F train at 42nd Street and just walked over on 40th, stood there at 40th and and Broadway, imagined that the Metropolitan Opera was off on my right in 1411, which is today a big office building, kind of boring, but that's the building that replaced it, and then walked south along Broadway, which is mostly pedestrian, so you can just kind of walk in the middle Mm -hmm. of the street. Imagine that there were many other theaters to the right and to the left of you as you descended Broadway in that stretch. So it's really this spot between 40th down to Herald Square where there were theaters all around you. The Casino Theater, which was at West 39th Street, was actually built the year before the Metropolitan Mm. opened. That was a big old medieval-style theater with a corner tower. It was built in the Moorish revival style. The most notable thing about the casino that I'll mention is in 1900, during a production of Floridoro, the casino was the first theater in the world to feature a chorus line of girls kicking, including the lovely Evelyn Nesbitt. At 39th Street. Yes, And just next to it was the Abbey Theater, which was named for the Broadway producer Henry Abbey. It was located at 1396 Broadway. It would switch its name in the 1890s to the Knickerbocker. And its claim to fame was that it was the first show to install an electric sign to advertise its shows, an illuminated, moving electric sign for its show The Red Mill. That opened in 1906. The sign was a giant red windmill that turned and rotated and was lit by electricity and would change the way that Broadway thought about advertising itself on its marquees. If you go just a little bit further, at 35th Street, you arrive at what was the New Park Theater and would become the Herald Square Theater. That's the northwest corner of Herald Square, basically across 35th Street Mm -hmm. from Macy's. It was also, Greg, built on the site of the former
0: aquarium. So the Herald Square Theater is now delighting people, and I assume a a larger number of audience members than the aquarium did. Well, I'm not sure.
1: I mean, it opened with (laughs) Arms and the Man, um, the American (laughs) premiere of George Bernard Shaw's classic. I'm not sure if that was more popular than the walruses doing the (laughs) can-can. Other notable things, though, that happened here in the Herald Square Theatre was that in 1900, this is where the Schubert brothers got their start producing. In 1906, George M. Cohen sang, You're a Grand Old Flag, Mm -hmm. for the first time from this stage, for his show George Washington Jr. In 1909, Helen Hayes debuted at the age of nine on stage here. And in 1912, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but in 1912, this was the first legit theater in New York City to switch over to become a movie palace.
0: Oh, the first of many, of course. The first of many, but it it
1: took an entrepreneur named Marcus
0: Lowe. Oh, Lowe's Theaters? Yes. The name is still with us? That Lowe is still with us. But again, this incredible notion of these gigantic productions not being like where we would consider Broadway, like so Times right. Square, is not none of these yet. theaters yes. are there today. They
1: were all demolished as the garment district moved over, and as office towers were needed and
0: such, and as the entertainment district moved. And because this is happening at the advent of electricity, which you mentioned, the gigantic sign, uh, during this period is when the theater district, so to speak, or at least this area around Broadway from 34th up to 40th Street, got this nickname, the Great White Way, um, named for all the bright, glistening lights of all of these theaters. And it was applied to this neighborhood before it actually came a little bit further uptown to the Times Square, 42nd Street Broadway area. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's
1: grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans. Our values, our struggles...
0: So we've got all this entertainment at this nexus of Manhattan at uh, between 34th and 40th or whatever in this area. Then over to the west, we have all the tenderloin and all the vices that happen there. Then over to the east, we have more elegant culture. So it seems like this is where it's going on in New York in the 1890s. So you know what it needs? It needs the media. And when you're talking about media in the 1890s, you're talking about the newspapers. (laughs) And before the 1890s, if you wanted to find a newspaper, you went to one place. You went to Park Row right next to City Hall, which was often also called Newspaper Row because it's where all of the major newspapers of New York City were lined up. This would be the street where JNR Music World is today? hmm In fact, many of those buildings that JNR actually inhabits are old, former newspaper buildings. Now, by the 1880s, of course, with the whole population moving up the island, it made me make sense for some of these newspapers to get out of there. In fact, newspapers did one of two things at this period. They either stayed in Park Row and built up... Or they moved out of Park Row. So, for instance, the, the New York World, um, that was Pulitzer's newspaper, in 1890, he just built the world's tallest building here on Park Row. Oh, um, the New York World, The New York World Building. But I want to focus our attention to another newspaper, the newspaper that, of course, gives our topic, its name today. It started in 1835 and was the brainchild of James Gordon Bennett, who was a Scotsman who would come to America and become one of the most influential newspapermen of the 19th century. By the Civil War, the Herald would be America's most read newspaper— so, The Herald was a national paper. We're it, not just talking about a New York Daily. It was distributed nationally, and the opinions that were uh, discussed in the newspaper reflected you know national interests. It was actually a fairly non-partisan newspaper, considering newspapers right. for this day. I mean, it would go back and forth. Well, in 1867, Bennett's son, James Gordon Bennett Jr., ran the newspaper, and he was a different kind of guy. He was known for his incredibly lavish lifestyle mm-hmm. and complete abandon, because he was just lived in wealth. In fact, most of his life in the late 19th century, although he ran the newspaper, he was ensconced in Paris surrounded in luxury and lived there for much of the time. So you can imagine then when he comes back to New York around, you know, in the 1890s, he would want to get out of grimy newspaper row. Why wouldn't he want to be uptown where all the hotels and all the restaurants and all the entertainment, the dazzle is? And he's used to Paris. And this is La Vie Boheme right there at his fingertips. All of a sudden you have the great white way that's sort of attracting him up there near Herald Square. So he decides to move their offices in 1894 the New York Herald moves to 35th Street between 6th Avenue and Broadway so which is maybe the shortest
1: block in Manhattan.
0: <laughs> it's one building. It's a very narrow building. Um, but that is the northern edge of Herald Square proper. Interestingly, for the building that was about to be constructed, he signed only a 30-year lease hmm. because he thought that the city was going to keep growing north- northwards. He said, in fact, quote, 30 years from now, the Herald will be in Harlem and I'll be in hell. <laughs> That should have been the motto for his paper. It should have indeed. Well, just wait till you hear about the building. It's, like, extraordinary. So naturally, being this guy with a penchant for luxuriance, he's going to reach for the highest demand architect, the one who is most notable for luscious, gilded-age architectural drippings, if you will. That would, of course, be Stanford White. In this era of the 1890s, we know him as building the Washington Square Arch and, all, and several buildings around Washington right. Square. All of these of Italian influence. Well, sure enough, the New York Herald Building um, in 1894 was an entire building that looked like a Venetian palazzo um, with these uh, columned arcades um, that you know pedestrians could walk around the building. And what would they see? This would be a two-story building, so kind of short but the printing presses would be on the first floor, and they would be in front of wide windows. And so, it would be one of Herald Square's prime attractions in the 1890s. People would gather at the windows, almost kind of like... The Today Show. The Today or Show at Rockefeller right? Center or right. something, where people would gather at the window, and they would just see the presses running, and they would wow. see the papers cut and distributed. So, this is an era when
1: the presses were in the same
0: building as, as the, the, writers. Right. the writers. Right. And they were- would be running up
1: and down the stairs. They'd writing mm-hmm. something and then getting a typeset and then getting a proof made down in the press. setting someone. text. I mean, right. setting
0: type in this building. It's incredible. Now, a very odd feature of the building. As if that wasn't odd enough. Bennett had this I don't even know how to say this without laughing. He had an obsession with owls. He had owls all over his own house. In fact, his, his mausoleum has owls all over it. Um, it was a symbol of wisdom, of course. So the building here was festooned with owls. All around it, wow! Um, you know, today a real who's who. <laughs> so today, of course, not only is the entire square named for this building, but that Al motif you'll actually see throughout Herald Square. I'll tell you a little bit about more about that later. The front of the building had this clock that faced into the square, and keep in mind how important an outdoor clock would have been at this time period when everyone had their own watches, that they would set the time um, to this particular clock. It would feature a statue of Minerva, Mm -hmm. the goddess Minerva, because her companion would be an owl. And there would be two mechanical bell ringers, whose names would be Stuff and Guff. They are sometimes, in fact, also called uh, by the biblical names Gog and Magog. Those are biblical names? (laughs) They're like... Rarely used biblical names from the, from the early chapters, I think. Some of the most iconic views of Gilded Age New York, I mean, if you like, just flip through a set of photographs from this era, you'll see this incredible, fantastic building of beautiful colonnade and these weird owls sitting next to an elevated train. Right. It's a really beautiful sight because, of course, neither of them are there today. Of course, this would be inspiration for the New York Times a few years later for their move uptown. And in 1904, they would one-up the Herald and move up a little further to 42nd Street to, of course, what would become Times Square. Now, let's go back to 1894. That was the year that the building was constructed, the Herald Building. Across the way, on that other triangular set of land— Just south of it. The city decided to erect a statue to honor one of its great citizens, that would be Horace Greeley. Uh, he was also a newspaper publisher of the New York Tribune, which started in 1841.
1: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression of Horace Greeley is somewhat different different because he's an abolitionist he's he was a progressive he was
0: he was fighting for the common man he was probably one of america's leading republicans during the civil war and huge lincoln supporter so he died in 1872 the city decided to erect a statue to him in this other little sliver of land and eventually in 1894 so the same year as the herald they called this Greeley Square. Was it sort of a slap in the face to the New York Herald? You know that there was some kind of, like, undercurrent right. uh, going on here, political undercurrent about the newspapers, but I wasn't able to detect that from anything that I read. So in the
1: same year, you have the city giving the Herald its own square and the Tribune Greeley Square mm-hmm. right across from each other. It, just, it does sound... Um, <laughs> Like a recipe for disaster or just antagonistic.
0: Now, I had always thought, and maybe I think I misinterpreted something, that the Tribune had their offices on the south side, like facing into the Herald offices. In fact, they didn't. However, there would be another newspaper here. The same year that Greeley Square opened, that building on the south side was occupied by a bank called the Union Dime Saving Bank. But on the ground floor were the counting offices, the counting floors of the New York world. Because, of course, you Uh know, Pulitzer wanted to get in a little bit of this action himself. That would not be the end of publications and media in this neighborhood. It would almost become a little media empire around Herald Square. The same year, we keep going back to 1894, a new general interest magazine built lavish offices here right off the edge of Herald Square at 19 West 31st Street. Today, it's known as the Herald Square Hotel. Offices were very different than some of these other offices. They would be bachelor apartments built into the offices so that the writers and editors could just work, live, and play. Oh, my. It sounds very madman. That magazine mm-hmm. was named Life Magazine. It would stay here, believe it or not, until 1937, when it would be bought, of course, by Time Magazine and move up to Rockefeller Plaza. So it was here the whole time, Wow! right next to all these other newspapers. So with all of these newspapers and magazines
1: expanding and building new headquarters here at Herald Square, it gives the impression that they were doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. They were selling lots of advertisements mm-hmm. and expanding. And it was a very profitable business to be in. One of the reasons for that, of course, is because people were out shopping and the shops were taking out advertisements. These huge advertisements in these papers, right? That was a new innovation in the world of shopping to to actually advertise, made by a certain Roland Hussey Macy. In the late 50s, in 1858, he moved to New York and opened R Macy's at 14th and 6th Avenue, now, we have an entire podcast on Macy's, number 23. Yeah. It's a pretty good early one, I think. We're yeah, just it's just not just bad. Just listen to it. But. So you can learn much more about Macy's there in the archives. But let's just say that one of his big innovations was that he was advertising and really built his business upon that. In 1877, Macy died, and his other partners would eventually as well. The ownership would fall onto Isidore and Nathan Strauss, who decided to move the business further uptown. So they moved, so so it was around 14th Street originally at this point, and lots of shopping was around 14th Street. Ladies Mile. Ladies Mile, right. At Union Square, and you can see there that you have Broadway that would continue up with lots of shops, but you also have Fifth Avenue that would continue up. And it's almost, in my mind at least, (laughs) like the mid-range goods would continue up Broadway and make their way over towards Sixth Avenue, while the luxury goods would find their way up Fifth Avenue.
0: Almost like a wave going up Fifth Avenue, all of these various luxury stores. And And mid-price
1: stores making their way over towards Sixth Avenue. So in 1900 Macy's bought this land at 34th and Broadway between 34th and 35th. They would open in 1902 at the corner of 34th and Broadway in this big massive red brick structure that built in the Italianate style. The original building that was that opened that year was not the size of today's Macy's. It's gone on Uh, as we cover in our show, Mm -hmm. to grow all the way back to 7th Avenue. And there were additions in the 1920s and early 30s that were, were added in the Art Deco style. Consumers were a little bit uh, confused when it opened because it was one of the first big department stores to open that far north. So they offered a steam-powered vehicle to drive people back and forth between Ladies Mile up that uh, wow. 20 blocks a little to shuttle get bus. a shuttle, a Macy's shuttle. <laughs> but um, so you, said
0: you mentioned the building wasn't in Italian style, so right. as was the Herald building, which it sat right next to. Right. And so it's interesting, they probably looked really... Beautiful and complementary to each other. We don't know that because, of, of course, the Herald building is gone. And I also mentioned that it took up, you know, between
1: 34th and 35th. I failed to mention that there was a little corner spot that we go into great detail in, Arm, in the podcast about that would not sell out to Macy's and would not sell that land. And the story goes that, in fact, the year before it was purchased by Macy's, there was an agent who was operating for what was, at the time, the city's largest, world's largest department store, the Siegel Cooper store, who wanted to buy up that land to block them from Mm. constructing this massive new store. They put their foot in the door, essentially, yeah. Right. And today, that spot is a sunglass hut.
0: (laughs) Still a sunglass hut. Still a
1: sunglass hut. They still cannot be properly incorporated into Macy's because of preservation laws. right? And Macy's pays a lot to to sort of cover up the top of this (laughs) sunglass hut with a giant sign that says Macy's so that you think it's all one big, happy structure. Mm -hmm.
0: So Macy's opened in 1902. That's right. With this weird building there as well. (laughs) And,
1: you know, that same year, 1902, with these same things happening, these theaters stretching up Broadway... Andrew Sachs, who was a successful store owner in Washington and really built a big booming business there, announced that he was going to open a store in New York as well on the southern intersection of 34th and 6th Avenue across from Macy's.
0: So it's like Macy's versus Sachs here in in terms of customer dollars.
1: This was designed in a neoclassical style of white limestone. It was it was different from Macy's brick building. So you had this white neoclassical. That was opened in nineteen oh two. And unlike Macy's, Saks only sold
0: clothing. We also have a podcast on Saks, too. So both of these have been covered in prior shows. But it's interesting. And that we sort of gathering the histories of these two together, right. it's like this was a theater district. There was all these newspaper presents, but almost instantaneously, it becomes a shopping retail area. Well, eight years after
1: Saks opened, there was a new boy on the block. The department store Gimbels opened uh, in 1910, just one block south of Saks, between 32nd and 33rd, facing 6th Avenue. That architect was Daniel Burnham of the Flatiron Building. Oh, sure. So Gimbel's gets into the game, and so the competition is, is heating up between Gimbel, Sachs, and Macy's. Well, Sachs, meanwhile, is looking at Fifth Avenue with envy. Horace Sachs, who was the son of Andrew, who was now running the operation, really wanted to move over to Fifth Avenue. He saw it as a classier destination and that he could take his business to a new level, but he didn't really have the revenues to get all the way over there. Well, Gimbal's went public in the 1920s, which was a very notable thing for a department store to do. They had a sudden infusion of all of this cash, and so what did they do? They bought Saks, their neighbor. With that money then, Saks was able to expand and build the new Saks Fifth Avenue uh, up on 49th Street and Fifth Avenue, closer to the the sort of upscale residents and shoppers of the Upper East Side. So then what happened to the older Saks? Well, they didn't, interestingly, they didn't close it. They just renamed it Saks 34th Street. But Gimbel's did. Gimbel's did, because right? Gimbel's was the owner. And they operated it as its own shop. So now Gimbel's really had two stores, not just one competing with Macy's, its big rival— they also then gave the Fifth Avenue store the name Saks Fifth Avenue mm-hmm. to distinguish it from the thirty-fourth Street. Thirty fourth Street, right. Right. Gimbals opened in nineteen ten, the same year as Penn Station opening. So that brought with it all of these commuters who could suddenly reach Manhattan's west side and come across Harold Square on their way to their, their jobs in Midtown what that did, of course, for the department stores. I mean, this is why the department stores really boomed in this area, because you had all these people crisscrossing 34th, 32nd, 31st
0: in a way that you never had before. So with Penn Station there, there must have been, of course, a influx of hotels, as usually is the case, around transit hubs. Between
1: 32nd and 33rd was a Hotel Martinique, which was a 600-room, Beaux-Arts-style, 10-story hotel, which opened in 1910. The Martinique is that named after the country Martinique? If only. No, this is named after R.
0: H. Martin, who was a department store. So this is just what they did. They just made it fancy. They they turned Martin into because who would want to stay at the hotel Martin? But the Martinique. The Martinique is something extraordinary. On
1: March 5th, 1923, Greg, this is a bit tragic, when Harry Young, a silent film actor, was promoting his new film by climbing the exterior of the hotel in a sort of publicity stunt, because this is 1920s, this is what people were doing, they were flagpole sitting, they were doing anything for publicity. He was climbing the exterior of the Martinique, and he lost his grip when he hit the ninth floor fell backwards and plunged to his death before a crowd of people. Ugh. Bitterly, ironically, yeah. the name of the movie he was promoting was Safety Last. Ooh.
0: well, I have no words as it's a silent film.
1: Today, it's a Radisson. Meanwhile, just up one block between 33rd and 34th was a Hotel McAlpin. And when it opened in 1912, that 25-story hotel was the largest hotel in the world. Yeah, not just in New
0: York, in the entire in the world. world. Do you know that is the place where one of the first places where radio really got their start? One of the first hotel radio broadcasts occurred there in 1920, which featured the opera diva Luisa Tetrazzini. Oh, we talked about her. Yeah, one thing I did not know in our radio show when we recorded it is that Chicken Tetrazzini is named after Louisa Tetrazzini. No, I was, I was cooking up a joke. <laughs>
1: Are you serious?
0: <laughs> yes, it's named. There's actually several Tetrazini type dishes that are named after her. She must have eaten a lot. But in uh, 1924, the radio station WMCA, which was one of the pioneering radio stations, broadcast from the McAlpin. In fact, its call letters WMCA, the MCA stands for McAlpin. Wow. The McAlpin is still with us today. It's, it's
1: not a hotel, but rather the luxury Harold Towers mm-hmm. apartment
0: building. The McAlpin is still with us, but of course the New York Herald building, perhaps the most famous building of its day here at Herald Square, right. is no longer there. Um, we don't know the fate of Mr. Bennett's soul. We don't know where he ended up, but his newspaper eventually merged with the Tribune, merged with Her- uh, Horace Greeley's newspaper. The Herald Tribune then later merged with... Pulitzer's New York World and all of these. So all these older newspapers in order to survive in the mid 20th century merged into this sort of conglomerate monster newspaper called the New York World Journal Tribune, which was very short lived and folded in 1967. But the Herald building itself was torn down after its 30 uh, year lease expired. It, however, some of that like graceful ornamentation, that weird like Minerva statue, That still exists because the the statue and the bell ringers were removed, and in 1940, the park the Herald Square little triangle, triangular park was renovated and then sat in the park in this granite monument that was dedicated to Bennett and to the Herald. Those bell ringers still chime to this day, and the little owls on the side of it, if you'll notice, are glowing with little green eyes. Really? Have you seen that? No. Walk by it and I've just stare at i walked by today. I didn't, I didn't see the, the owls. Green eyes eyes if you think that that's creepy go up to this monument and look on the side of it what you'll see is a mysterious doorway there's a curious plaque on it of of course an owl with five stars and a moon shape on it and inscribed upon it is a small french phrase la nuit porte conseil." i believe that's uh, is that Brilliant. correct here is that la nuit porte Which means, basically, nighttime brings advice, or let's sleep on it. So that's a little door into the monument. Mm -hmm. Now, there have actually been conspiracy theories that because of owls often mean secret societies, that that is a secret doorway into some sort of, like, chamber room, a ritual room of some sort. Although why they would build it in the middle of a public square... But that's not something I can speak of, these secret societies. Has
1: anybody ever seen coming out of this this secret door?
0: I think only people who run conspiracy blogs have seen (laughs) something like that. Now, a lot of these department stores thrived with this new influx of people. Of course, Macy's did. Of course, they were helped out a little bit by their regular holiday tradition that started in 1924, called the Thanksgiving Day Parade, which ran through here at Herald Square. Some of these other department stores sort of limped into the 70s and 80s and eventually closed. Like, Gimbel's uh, lasted all the way until 1986. That Saks building... Yes, which, that Sachs- just across the street. It had become an EJ Corvette, which was a a mid-priced clothing store. And then that eventually closed, and in 1985 became the Herald Center. Um, So that old, fabulous architecture by Buckman and Fox was quickly covered up by the Herald Center in mediocre blue glass. According to the American Institute of Architects, they describe it, quote, a bulbous blue whale swallowed Buckman and Fox. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so the original sacks, the, the original facade is still underneath some place. It's under
0: that, that blue shiny It's exterior. literally under glass. The gimbals next door became A&S Plaza and then to great horror everywhere, the Manhattan Mall, um, which struck apoplexy through New Yorkers <laughs> because they couldn't, like people at this time couldn't understand a mall being in Manhattan. Manhattan didn't have malls, but so there was a, a, certainly a little schadenfreude when the mall then was quickly perceived to be a financial failure. It had several floors that had to be closed and are today office space. Now, something a little bit more intriguing is happening on the southeastern end of Greeley Square um, with the rise of Korean immigration in the u s in the late 60s It gave rise to this new ethnic neighborhood which you call today Koreatown, and its center is on thirty second Street between Fifth and Sixth Avenue. We call that street Korea Way. It's a very fun, lively, but it's a little absurd strip of karaoke bars and restaurants and delicious sh- restaurants and yes. shops and I have to give a shout out to the Koryo bookstore because it's a stationery store that also sells one of New York City's largest collection of Korean pop music, which is where I go every year to get my niece a Christmas present, because she's big into Korean pop. So that's, And because you're a very cool uncle. Well, I you know, I try to be. Now, the whole area, of course, remains a pivotal shopping district in New York City today. Hopefully, some of you are listening to this podcast right now while you're weaving yourself through the aisles of a Macy's, perhaps. Um, on the blog, barryboyspodcast.com, I will have a series of pictures of this neighborhood because it's very well documented in photographs, and it's Amazing to see the strange but gradual transformation of the buildings around it and the traffic and that elevated ripping down and the Herald ripping down. Hopefully what we have shown is that it is an area with an incredibly rich history that sometimes gets overlooked because, of course, it's Bigger Brother Times Square gets all the glory.
1: And if you haven't been there in a while, I encourage you to do what we both done recently and just go to Herald Square. For the purpose of being in Herald Square instead of just trying to get through Herald Square, (laughs) which is how I've done it for
0: years. (laughs) And look for those glowing owls. You can follow us, the Bowery Boys, on Facebook, of course, and on Twitter. And again, BoweryBoysPodcast.com is the name of our blog. so. So on that note, have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.